I'm Margot Neal. I'm Siobhan McHugh. And this is Heart of Artness. A journey into the cross-cultural stories that animate the Aboriginal art world. Culture is our eternity. It's like language, it's a culture. Skin names, it's a culture. Our bond is culture. Because land is our mother earth. And you know, all of us, we own the land and we own the sea. So that's how we do the art. When we paint, we're talking about the environment, tied it into the land as well, and the people. I love it, how the heart is carrying me out, and how we can focus to carry it out for our right, to share to the world the young people are like, in the heart, in the culture. How are we living now, you know? Songline, yeah, it's telling same story like one we tell from the art story. Same story, one story, through the songs and through the paintings. Mm. Through the heart. Australia's tropical north coast in the bush of northeast Arnhem Land. Later we'll meet the three Yolnu artists you just heard. Some of the slender trees here will be used to make didgeridoos or yidaki, instruments popular now around the world. <laughs> Others are stripped for big sheets of bark, the local canvas, or used for ceremonial poles. Using ochres, the Yonu inscribe their sacred law onto the bark, in the process making mesmerizing, shimmering art. The art, according to Yonu um, rhetoric, is powerful in itself, so it's actually radiating power. That's Will Stubbs. For over 20 years, he's managed the Buku Laringay Art Centre in Yurikala, about 600 kilometres east of Darwin, on behalf of the Yolnu people. So without knowing it, people who buy some Yolngu art, and they might buy it as a souvenir, they might buy it as a confirmation that, you know, savages are really cute and look at what I got, or they might buy it as cutting-edge contemporary art. But from a Yolngu perspective, whoever's got it in their house without knowing it is being radiated by this power. Art, culture, law and politics are seamlessly interwoven in the Yolnu world. They're at the core of life itself. Art, it's 
telling something for us. The story, what's happening from beginning to the end. It's our culture and it's our eternity. Without no culture, we have to be nothing. It's your eternity. It's our eternity and it's our life, it's our culture. That's Yinamala Gumana, the young chair of the Buku Art Centre. We're speaking at Gangan, a tiny settlement three hours' drive on a mud road from Yurikala. It's home to two other artists, Garawan Wanambi and Goinbi Ganambar. It's also the site of a terrible massacre of their people in 1911. Over a hundred years on, what I'm trying to understand is how do you get from the fierce primal power of this art to the mundane matter of making money? The art at Buku is very diverse. There are two-metre-high ceremonial poles called larakich, hollow log coffins covered in traditional design according to the artist's clan background. There are bark paintings, large and small, with patterns made by delicate cross-hatching using white, yellow, red and black ochres. The tourists are enchanted. All of the art that I've tended to see in the past has all been dots. So this is uh, certainly very different. One artist has gone for bold green acrylics on bark. Another has abandoned the traditional for more abstract mark making. Speechless. It's a whole new world. We've seen it in, in the suburban areas, but when you actually come to the indigenous areas, um, you know, it's, it's a real eye-opener. Woven mats, bags and jewellery spill out of the shop. All these works are made from natural media and not by accident. So we're using the land because in 1996 the Elders Committee of this Art Centre decreed that if you're going to paint the land, you use the land. One work seems out of place. Two tall, elegant birds, brolgas, are made of steel. They were made by Goinby using a very non-traditional tool. Engelgrinder. Engelgrinder. Mm. And you, did you use that just for work or something and then decide to use it for your art? Yes. Just brogas, you know, do the pattern of it. Yeah. And the, the rubber and the PVC, you use PVC too? Yeah. Well, it's lovely to meet you. Ma. Gunbi Ganambar started working in discarded bits of industrial material at his homeland in Gangan and it was, it's been generally agreed that the land, the definition of the land can include stuff that white people chuck on your land. So we have since um, probably 2011 been using recycled materials as well as naturally occurring materials in representing the land. Goinby and Garawan did a stint as construction workers and they co-opted the skills and tools they got from whitefellas in the service of telling ancient stories. It's a good metaphor for what this series is about, the intersections and conversations that happen between Aboriginal artists and the non-Indigenous world at remote art centres. The art centre manager plays a key role in mediating that gap. So that's where my interview with Will Stubbs began. 
rather inauspiciously. You know, you're clearly living between two worlds here. The white, the western world and the all new world. Can you try and explain for people who aren't able to experience it what the difference between those two worlds is? Uh, no, <laughs> which is probably the starting point, is to accept the inability to explain, uh, to accept you know, the inability to represent either world successfully in the other dimensions. If Will sounds a bit frustrated at times, maybe it's because the stream of well-intentioned but uninformed tourists can test your patience. Like this man I saw inspecting the intricate designs on a ceremonial pole. I'd love to be able to take a totem pole home, but I don't know where the devil I'd put it. Do you think that they are uh, done by hand or are they sprayed with a spray gun? What do you think about that one? Oh, they're done by hand. Will comes from down south. He never expected to end up running an art centre in Yurikala. Uh, I was a criminal lawyer working for Aboriginal Legal Aid and I fell in love with the world's most amazing woman. That woman is Mirkiawa Gananbar, principal of Yurikala High School. How many children in the school? Should be 110 today. That's gone up in the last couple of weeks. So that's good news. So eh? that's good news, yeah. Will reckons he's only one of many who've been profoundly changed by living among the Yolnu. I don't know anyone who's spent time with the Yolnu who doesn't have a complete mind-altering understanding of where they fit in the world, and it's just by the nature of seeing the reality of who Indigenous Australians are. Although Buku Larangay is one of Australia's most successful Aboriginal art centres, Will has no illusions about where he fits in the hierarchy. I see myself as like a dung beetle. So actually, for me, the art is the artist's life. Because these people are ceremonial people, they're expressing their identity, they're making marks, they're dancing, they're singing, they're interacting with family, they're interacting with spirits. We sing this tree and dance. You know, this sounds exotic and dramatic, but this is just the humdrum way of life of this particular group of people at this particular point in time. And included in that is making art, and then they'll just deposit it. It's the detritus of their real art, is this physical art that they leave behind. So now we're getting number two back. Yes, we are, and then we'll head back to Art Centre. Back to Buku. Back to Buku Larangay. on this journey into cross-cultural territory are Margot Neal, senior Indigenous curator at the National Museum of Australia, and the art historian Ian McLean. 
Margot and Ian have been around these traps a long time, so over breakfast on our first morning at Yirikala, I got a bit of an induction on the history of the Yolnu and why their culture survived the predations of colonisation better than most. Methodist missionaries only arrived here in the 1930s, but the Yolnu had learned how to negotiate outsiders 400 years before that. Makassan Muslim traders from Indonesia. You see, the Muslims were the first lot here. Yeah, who not, actually interacted. Not the Christians. Yeah, who actually interacted intensively, not just yeah. popped in from And Asia. they didn't come here to dispossess the people. This, they just came to trade. Your metal tools. Yeah, the metal are really interesting. And we want in. your boats. And so this mob were basically driving it. And they learned to, to be very sophisticated. But there was also between tribes these rituals of diplomacy. <laughs> Now you're recording, you hear? Hello, hello, hello. At Yirikala, Yolnu culture coexists easily alongside Western stuff. Kids playing homemade judaki run up to test my microphone. At the art centre after school, I see kids crowding around screens. One group's looking at pop music, another at a footy match, a third at a Yolnu ceremony. Yinamala is comfortable with that so long as the culture stays strong. It's good to have two worlds balance each other. Culture is our power, it's our weapon. The weapon, not to kill the weapon, but to fight with that weapon. Welcome everybody. Tonight, we've got a really special show. Yirikala Mob, please welcome Mukun and Yinamala. I like to say in my language, How are you, everybody? What you see? The painting. Is our power. And it's a clap stick. Is our power. And our boomer. And a spear. Is how we work together <coughs> to bring it closer Wanga. the ground of this wanga and the clay of this painting. Minchi. Of this painting of what you see today. Nungat. It's it's really sacred. Kabulo Warangol. And outside. Yo. In another episode, we'll hear more about how the Yolnu use art and law, the twin pillars of culture, as a weapon to win political change. But let's get back to the art centre itself. Ian McLean compares the art centres that erupted across the country in the 1980s to the city-states of the Italian Renaissance. But they're also distinctly Australian operations. The Aboriginal Art Centre is a peculiarly Australian invention, like the Hills Hoist or the rotary engine or the cochlear implant, and it's something that should be celebrated. There would be models of artist collectives around the world, but this one is tied to a spiritual basis. It's tied to land. It is a communal activity. And so... Um, it's controlled by the artists, so the artists are paid up front. Uh, you know, in, in, in legal terms, they get a 100% commission against a future sale. Um, and they're getting 60 to 70% of the final price 
up front. And as they're our bosses, they have a strong role in negotiating what that price will be. And uh, they bring in what they want to bring in, not what we ask for. And then we have to make it work from there. And that's a very different business model to what anyone else can understand. Sorry, I'll get it. You're right. In order to market the art, Will Stubbs has listened carefully to how the Yolnu artists describe its purpose. Hey, how you going? Yeah, uh, you've got to ring the other mob down there, 8987. One elder, Jambawa Marawili, summed it up. The land is the spirit to which the Yolnu, through their art, give a tongue. Yeah, so, I mean, every artist has their own relationship to this spiritual political dynamics. This song is about a fire. This land has an identity, uh, there's many different identities, there's a patchwork of identities and that's represented by the thousands of different designs that you can see in the art centre here. It is replete, it is complete, it is totally satisfied by its own essences, but as Jumbworth had said to me, the land lacked one thing, it couldn't express itself, and that's the yawn. And so, you know, I see the rest of Australia where many groups have been, um, you know, smashed and lost their language, had their language and land and identity and sacred designs and objects taken off them. And even in some cases, completely wiped out. And yet the spirit under Yongle rhetoric is still there. It's just had its tongue cut out. And so when these people are painting, that's what they're doing. They're expressing the land. Ian and I are travelling with the senior artist Garawan Wanambi and his wife Manini out to his ancestral lands at Gangan. We go hunting here. Yeah. Uh, fishing, tortoise, barramundi and blackjack. We've stopped at a waterhole. And that's where the sea come in to the inland. Garawan is from the saltwater people. In his 50s, with a faintly melancholic air, he paints traditional dreaming stories of where the salt water meets the fresh water. It's a beautiful spot ringed by paperbark trees and with plenty of bush tucker. Paperbark can be used for yams, fish, um, young babies. Yeah. yeah. And mostly we eat is like fish. The living things that be in the land, like kangaroos, like a blackberries. Yes. Feed to the kids. So you were born here? At Gangan, another celebrated artist, Goinbi Ganambar, shows me a larakich or ceremonial pole he's working on. Oh, that's my daughter. Thank you so much. With his tall frame and wraparound sunglasses, he looks a bit like a rock star. Larakichi. It's almost ready for tomorrow. Mm. And did you get the cut down the, the log? Yeah, I went to the bush. And that's the green one there. I'll mix it with yellow and black from the rock, from the land. Gangan is home to about 80 people. There's no mobile phone coverage, but there's a well-equipped school and a health clinic. 
Down by the river, it's shady and green. This was always a place of ceremony, but in 1911, a dark news story was added. Place where you're standing now, this is the place where the European or the Gangan Makassar, our old people, the Brarpui nation, eh? Brarpui people from this country, got shot for no reason, for no purpose. And it was very sad to us, for those who are the descendants. And um, my families and my uncles, my fathers, they decided to put a, the plaque. Could you read it for us, Inamal? Um, yeah, the, in memory of the Brarpui people, the Gangan Makassar. The Gangan massacre of 1911 was fairly typical. A white surveyor went missing and local police suspected he'd been killed by the Yolnu. So they came here and shot up to 30 people. One man survived, Yinamala tells me, by hiding under lily pads. Yinamala's great-grandfather arrived back from a trip and stumbled on the victims. When he got there and he see all the people, you know, lying down and he only recognised the armbands. That's what my grandfather just recognised, only the armbands. And then he knew that these people um, was, killed. Was, was killed. And their body, um, their bones, their flesh, flying down the river. Some in the land. Weeks after the massacre, the white surveyor showed up. So all these trees now, you can see this is the witnesses, see? They were the witnesses of these people, what's happening in this land. So it's a very sacred place. Sacred place, yeah. Though many people died, the Yolnu were not vanquished. Their victory lies in preserving their culture as a vital living force. Although there's 20 years between them, both Garawan and Goinbi have a special role to play in that. Goinbi is a um, like caretakers and Garawan caretakers for this country and for this ceremony and for this uh, law as well. <laughs> Up here in Arnhem Land, we still own the culture. We live in it, no? and yeah, and it's so special. And no? that's what you're also showing through your art, isn't it? Yes, it can be carried out to the world to be recognised. Like through the heart now, you can see the ways that can inflect to to the children and to get a story of it and to live in the way how we lived and our past. It might be just a linguistic tick, but I love how Garowen says heart for art. He says it a lot over the next hour as I sit with him and his close friend Goinby down by the river. It feels really special to hear how they work. They put a huge amount of thought into how they use the gapon or clay. The first 
I want to tell you about the cup and how I look it and how I use and how I focusing about it you know how it can be changed into how we can like it you know into the heart into the color into the shapes but the story can be story and you told me you use special colors why did you change from the black and the red from that color it's so also represents the yule itself the yule the sun the land the blood and sharing the heart to to the world from the yule to the modern world and to this color right it can tell a story of the colors and to what's the beautiful is and how how beautiful is a color can be to match into the land tree river sea so you have this kind of rose pink color that comes through yes and it will just come out from sand yeah or from the rock really from the sand you know Garawan goes back and forth trying to make this ignorant napagi a yolnu term for white fella understand Goinbe defers to him and talks very little Garawan is intense he's communicating his whole philosophy of life he keeps coming back to the idea that the gapan the clay the ochre whatever you want to call it is the physical universe the yolnu inhabit and by modifying the color he's endlessly interpreting the story of country and his connection to it that's why the art or heart is such a crucial vessel for conveying culture color can be changing mm. in the heart the way that i look at it and going be can to mm. color can be matched to you know so it can tell the story behind its connection in the land and the water after the sea that come out from the heart and water can be changed into white but mostly from the soil itself from the mud it can reform in different ways in the seasons water can be changed it can be changed black after the level of the water can be dropped down and what is so special a kamanago is can be the kapon itself and how the kapon can be mixed and how colorful can be and that's into the sea the land the river back in sydney months later when i look at the transcript of our riverside conversation i'm shocked by how flat the words seem on the page but when i listen to the tape i'm transported back to the magic of our meeting english doesn't do garawan poetic justice but in person that day he was electrifying i felt that he'd shared a great truth and though much of it eluded me i felt its authority and we sharing our way of the knowledge of the river the land that to the sea connected to painting the story can be its stories is always here you know? it's there 
and sometimes Papagi can't see, you know? They might like the picture, you know? With the style. They, they don't see what is there. Only some of you can, you know? Maybe that's where Garwin's melancholy comes from. He's telling such pure story through his painting. And some of us are just seeing it as something that will look nice in the hall. But being a Yolnu, Garwin does enjoy meeting outsiders through his art. Cade MacDonald, who worked with Will Stubbs at the Buku Centre, organised for Garwin to do a mural in Melbourne. That was my first experience in Melbourne. And I didn't expect it. How hard carried me out. It showed me a way where I'm going to, that I never expected. I love, I love it, how the heart is carrying me out. I think Will stop and Harry respected me and Gwenbi, and especially to the heart people, like Jamboa, Yenimala, Harry respect each other, and communicate, and to carry out our painting in style, in colorful presence to the world. As our conversation ended, Goinby told me how they also sang their story. Song line, yeah, it's telling same story, one story, through the songs and through their paintings. In That's the what they all does. Through mm. the heart. And those songs, called Manike, are in turn recorded and archived at the Mulka part of the art centre, the museum attached to the gallery. They have thousands of recordings like this one that document sacred ceremonies such as initiations and funerals. The buko and the mulka. Buko is leading us forward. Mulka is looking back this way. There's that dual Yolnu approach again. The mulka charts the past and the present, while buku promises a future. As we talk, a tall young man walks past us unhurriedly. He's barefoot, wearing only shorts carrying a long spear. His wife and a small child follow behind. It's a timeless scene of a hunting expedition, until I notice the cool bag the woman is carrying. It somehow seems to encapsulate the Yolnu ability to move between worlds. Back at Buku, Ian and I look through fresh eyes at the rosy, captivating optical illusions that Garawan paints. If you look at most of the other poles, the colours they use seem to be almost directly from the ochre, whereas Garawan mixes his ochres to make his own colours. So this, this is like an orange. It's a yellow with a little bit of red in it. It's not exactly yellow ochre like you see in the other ones, 
And then by putting that yellow-orange against a red that is mixed yellow in to make it... Almost brown. So he's got the yellow dots, yellow-orange dots, sitting on the yellow-red ground, and it creates an optical effect. It creates a sort of a shimmer, especially with the black ground that's behind it. And these are sort of diamond patterns, which are his pattern just repeated on yes. the pole. Yes, and so when you look at the whole pole, you get this very abstract but sort of resonance or, or shimmer going on. In the others, you also get a shimmer, but the shimmer is created by the, you know, by the mignati, by the cross-hatching, rather than by the colour. So even though all these are painted from the same ochres, it's an unusual Yolnu form of iconography. We move on to Goinby's stunning ceremonial poles. The yellow has been painted out. You had yellow at the top. Yellow out. Yeah. With the black one. With the black one, yeah, you decided. Yeah. The first cut, eh? Yeah. Then smooth with grinder. Yeah. And then put the colour in black one. Yeah. Make it better. And then paint the whole Add thing. Add the paint. Goimbi is also, you know, he gets these unusual colours, this sort of olivey green, which is got from mixing two ochres together again. He's looking to bring in something else all the time, whereas Garawan's, he feels, trying to do the exact opposite, strip everything back to some sort of bare minimum. Very different ways of working, yet um, two artists who, who work closely together and are, are great mates. That pole was a commission. It's already been paid for. Goinbee and Garawan have won important art prizes and had their work exhibited in major galleries, as have other Buku artists. The money is coming in, but they both fob off my mention of money. Garawan calls it rupia, a word that perhaps goes back to those first Makassan traders. Rupia money can change to, to change people how to balance in rupiah. Some of us, we don't know what the rupiah is. Rupiah can be special to you people, you know? But with the heart, it's showing away what we're going to get for, for our living, for our rights. There is monetary reward, but there is no wealth, so whatever is received is immediately shared. So it's more of a means to an end, to getting to that ceremony, to feeding the family. It's, there's no ability to accumulate any wealth because it's existing in a different tense. You know, it, the tense that's in our heads that's regretting the past and anticipating the future as, as we're trying to live in the moment is all just our own particular psychosis and you all don't suffer from it. So there's money, it's spent. Like all successful artists, Aboriginal artists depend on a large, invisible network of dealers and galleries, curators and critics. An art centre like Buku Laringay acts as the primary dealer for the artist. But as manager, Will Stubbs knows he's mediating far more than the buying and selling of art. He's trying to honour an entirely different worldview, that of the Yolnu, while also accommodating a Western paradigm. And the amazing thing is, it's working. Will just wishes this two-way thinking could be more broadly adopted. You know, our binary mindset doesn't really accommodate the idea that everyone could be right simultaneously. Everyone could quite easily 
as I do and as my daughter does and as almost all Yongo do, manage to service both masters simultaneously. But because of the refusal to acknowledge even that there is another culture, European Australians have allowed a situation to develop where there's a whole lot of people living in the gap between Yongo culture and non-Indigenous culture. There's no leg up or assistance to get involved with non-Indigenous culture and there's active suppression of Yongo culture. And basically for 30 years, the unintended social policy has been saying to young men who don't speak English, look, here's 200 bucks a fortnight, why don't you go to the pub? We've got nothing for you. There is no other alternative presented apart from places like the art centre or the school or the ranges. Um, you know, there's no flexibility whatsoever in the non-Indigenous world to employ young people and allow them to observe their ceremonial obligations because there's no acknowledgement of the fact that they are running on a different philosophy. Sitting out by the generator, Will Stubbs holds forth with the oratory of the criminal lawyer he once was. But this time, the defendant is the Western mindset we impose unilaterally on Indigenous people. Every so often, when an archaeologist pushes back the beginnings of Aboriginal culture by another 10,000 years, or a climatologist discovers that the end of the Pleistocene era is accurately recorded in songlines still performed today, we pat ourselves on the back for being home to the most ancient culture in the world. It's currently estimated to be 60,000 years old. But day to day, we relegate indigenous people to the margins. A smoking ceremony here, an acknowledgement of the original custodians there. As Will Stubbs and the Buku Larangay Art Centre shows, it doesn't have to be that way. We could embrace indigenous spirituality, not pigeonhole it because that doesn't work. For people who are spiritual, everything is spiritual. And so when you basically take the spirituality out of a job or out of a home or out of walking into a bank or a shop, then you're basically asking fish to live on dry land. And our system's very adept at blaming the fish for dying. The two systems need to be more closely abutted so that gap doesn't exist for people to disappear into. And that means what we do every day. Running a commercial business compliant with all government regulations, um, you know, receiving and acquitting government funds, servicing private clients to a high level of satisfaction and employing ceremonial young people doing it. It's done by just paying attention and acknowledging that there are two systems and finding out which one you have to follow as every circumstances arises and allowing people who don't want to follow that imperative and opt out and not punishing them for it. And this is the voice of your authority that's been begging non-Indigenous Australia to have some role in uh, managing their own communities. But... It's not in the white textbook, so it can't happen. That was Art with Heart, episode two of our series Heart of Artness, which looks at the cross-cultural currents swirling behind the way Aboriginal art is produced and marketed. The series is devised and produced by me, Siobhan McHugh, with the support of Margot Neal, 
Senior Indigenous Curator at the National Museum of Australia, and art historian Ian McLean, Hugh Ramsey Chair of Contemporary Art at the University of Melbourne. Heart of Artness is a University of Wollongong research project funded by the Australian Research Council. Thanks to the artists and staff of Buku Laringay Mulka Art Centre, and in particular to Garawan Wanambi, Goinbi Ganambar, Yinamala Gumana, Will Stubbs, Kate MacDonald, Jeremy Cloak and Joe Brady. Thanks to Ishmael Marika for providing songlines or manike from the Mulka archives. In the next episode, we look at the power of Yolnu art to effect political change, a tangible example of its cross-cultural impact on all Australians. And check out the first episode, The Conquistador, The Walpuri and The Dog Whisperer, about Warla Kalangu Art Centre at Uendamu, the links on our website, Heart of Artness. You'll also find pictures there of the fabulous art of the Yolnu and more.